You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. You are listening to Leaders and Legends. Our podcast guest today, you've seen her on your TV. You've seen her on your movie screen. She is Carolyn McCormick. She is perhaps best known for playing Dr. Elizabeth Olivet in the Law and Order franchise, but she's been in several movies, several TV shows. She's done theater in New York and off-Broadway. We've had a brief conversation here before we've started recording the podcast, and I can tell you she is just as kind in this setting as she is on television and films. Ms. McCormick, thank you very much for coming on the Leaders and Legends podcast. My pleasure. Is acting something that I haven't had any actors or actresses on the podcast, but I've read a lot of biographies. Is it something that hits you when you're very young? Or is it something like, oh, if X doesn't work out, let me try Y? For me, it's funny. I used to do in our neighborhood, I used to do Christmas movies for the neighborhood, Christmas plays for the neighborhood. It was really fun. Chris, I'd get all the neighborhood kids together <laughs> and I'd direct and cast myself in a Christmas play. And then we would do it at our house on Christmas Eve, and all the parents would come and watch their kids do a play with the night before Christmas, or we did Christmas Carol, we did When the Chimes Rang. Every year we do a different play. <laughs> and the whole neighborhood got together, and my mother would make food, and everyone would have drinks and food and watch their kids in a little Christmas play. And it was so much fun. And then I started doing speech tournaments, dramatic and terp and things like that, and traveling around Texas where I grew up doing different reading plays. And that's what I learned that I didn't ever read a lot when I was growing up book wise. And then when I started reading plays, I couldn't stop reading. 
So that probably happened to me around eighth or ninth grade. And then I would do the plays at school. I did speech tournaments. I would do plays on the weekend for my parents. I'd have friends up to our farm and I'd make them rehearse scenes for me. And then we would do a scene for my parents out on the patio. So I guess it was always in my blood in terms of wanting to entertain or wanting to tell a story. I won't say what year you were born out of just politeness. <laughs> But a you, long time ago. <laughs> uh, you, I say you're eight years older than me. That's all I'll say. Uh, but you <laughs> grew up in a time where TV was reaching its maturity and you had all those variety shows, whether it was Carol Burnett or Perry Como, Andy Williams, obviously Dean Martin. Did you get a chance to see a lot of these actors on TV and get influenced maybe one way or the other besides just entertained because everyone was still alive back then and it was just a beautiful time for tv and movies but tv especially yeah and variety shows oh i remember watching the flip wilson show i loved the flip wilson show and also i I think red skelton had a show i remember that i don't remember really watching actors get interviewed when i got older i read biographies by like shows mclean lauren bacall actors that I was interested in. My favorite TV shows, though, that I watched were like The Mod Squad. I loved The Mod Squad. And I loved The Mary Tyler Moore Show and The Carol Burnett Show. And I, my very first professional job was with Carol Burnett, just out of grad school, a movie that never ended up getting made. It was with Carol Burnett, Jimmy Stewart, a huge, great cast. Oh, my and, God. Um, How did it not get made? It didn't get made because she had some medical problems. Mm-hmm. We were in rehearsal, which is really unusual to do. We rehearsed for a week, and then we were going to fly to Hawaii to shoot this movie called The Late Christopher Bean, which was based on a play called The Late Christopher Bean. And Jimmy Stewart was playing my dad. It was heaven. And then oh. one day, Carol didn't show up, and she had some issues that she had to deal with, and the movie got shelved. That was my first professional job in movies. And I was so sad. <laughs> oh, So how do you introduce yourself to Jimmy Stewart? Who's probably, if you take account both his acting and his record in World War II, you could make a case as the greatest movie legend, Hollywood legend of all time. I don't know. I was only like 21 and I just came into the rehearsal and introduced myself and I wasn't as familiar with his movies as I am now because now I'm a complete Turner Classic Movies fanatic, which I watch all the time. Let's hope it gets um, saved. Yeah. So I, I'm much more aware of him now than at the time. I just knew he was a movie star. And I don't know. I just introduced myself and was like, I'm playing your daughter. And we were hurt. <laughs> did he sound like Jimmy Stewart or did he sound like Rich Little impersonating? No, he sounded Jimmy like Stewart. Jimmy Stewart. And he was so sweet. So He's gracious, very tall. so humble and not didn't have a movie star vibe at all. And how was Carol Burnett, if I may ask? She was also super sweet. It was a great group. It was the luckiest job. George Schaefer was directing it. He used to do all the oh, live yeah. Playhouse 90 shows. Meryl Karp produced it. But yeah, it never happened. You are you have a Bachelor of Fine Arts. I do. A, I went in a Master to- of Fine Arts. I went to Williams College in Massachusetts and then grad school at the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. Was that was getting into television like a proximate goal? It was so popular or still popular, but it was so popular then like 
I have to do TV if I'm going to make it. Was it a particular draw for you? I love the theater. I just wanted to do plays and plays. I never thought about that. But then, of course, I got an agent and then you start auditioning for things and they might be a play, they might be a movie, they might be a TV show. And my first, actually, my very first audition with my agents was for The Late Fist for Bean and I was cast. So I got into a TV movie right away. Then it didn't happen. I did a play down in San Diego at the Old Globe Theater, which led to, oh no, that was afterwards. The next job I got was Spencer for Hire, a TV series that shot in Boston. So I moved to Boston for a while. I didn't love living in Boston. I didn't love that series because I didn't really know what to do with my character. So Mm -hmm. I left that show and then went down to San Diego to do a play. And then, yeah, I just kept working and be working what I also teach now. And I feel that you have to follow the yeses. I don't set rules about I'm not going to do this. I'll only do this. I you know, I certainly have standards of things I don't want to do because I don't agree with them morally or I think they're distasteful. That I mm-hmm. say no to. But I don't ever judge theater, te- film, television. I judge the product, the pro- the project and decide there, yes, I like this project or no, I don't. You, I'm going to if you don't mind, I'm going to jump ahead just a second because you, you mentioned what you do or don't do, depending on the morality or ethics or distastefulness. But you were in a movie in 2018 called Maplethorpe. Yes. Robert Maplethorpe was the bete noir, I think you would call it, of the non-arts crowd in the 90s and maybe a few years later and certainly had his share of controversies. I was going to ask you about this movie anyway. I'll just do it right now. What drew you to the role? What drew you to that part? I was fascinated by Maplethorpe. My mother was a big art collector, so I knew who he was. I thought he was an amazing artist. I don't necessarily wouldn't buy one of his pictures per se. They don't appeal to me, but I certainly understand his artistry. And I loved the idea of his mother, who was very religious, and how sometimes the oppressive nature of that can make you can be very confusing because you can't find your true voice. And I think he just wanted to take beautiful pictures and he was very afraid of being gay and that he would go to hell because of how he was brought up. So when he finally decided, okay, I'm just going to let myself be true to myself, which was homosexual. He thought I'm going to go to hell. This was my theory that I'm going to go to hell anyway. So no holes bar, just go. And his paintings got more and more graphic and aggressive. They're still beautiful. His use of color of light, black and white and dark and shadow, it's exquisite. But the character of the mother was interesting because I think parents have a big influence on how children ultimately approach the world. And giving them the freedom to express themselves, I feel, is really important. Sometimes they may not express themselves the way you want, Of course, if they're doing something that's illegal (laughs) or criminal, you need to really step in. But hopefully that's not the situation. But I do think if you have an artistic bent, you should be allowed to explore it. Is your deep education or has your deep education in the arts proved to be part of the foundation of that view that you can look at something and go, I wouldn't buy that, but it sure is beautiful. Or I wouldn't go to that play, but you know what, they're discussing a very important topic. How has your education helped broaden your sense of acceptance or non-judgment? That's a good question. I don't know if it's my education or my parents or 
just the way I naturally see the world, but I feel very strongly about not judging others. And I feel very strongly about not telling other people how to think, let people think for themselves. And I feel very strongly about everyone should be accountable for their choices. So if you decide to do certain things, own them, don't deny them, hold yourself accountable. I'm very just, I'm very distrustful of a lot of things that happen in politics now because people aren't being held accountable for their bad choices and, or they're denying they even made those choices. And I think that's a very poor example for our children. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is film, TV, and stage star, Carolyn McCormick. I watched, to prepare for this interview, a really lovely tribute from you about your Spencer for Hire co-star, Robert Yurt. What is it like to be, and I'm going to ask this, I'm going to ask this question on purpose this way, to be a young woman to go on these shows with these, with, you know, like male stars, male actors, is there a certain way that you have, and obviously your, your tribute about Robert York was wonderful and what a great man he is. So it's not about him, but how do you handle that being a woman on a TV show with a strong male star and, you know, a certain image that he has, is it tough? Um, no, I've always been just, I never really think of myself so much as, oh, the, I'm not a little wilting flower kind of girl. <laughs> so I just go on and, uh, deal with each person for who they are. And I, I try to pay attention to what they like and don't like and how they behave. And I just adjust accordingly, but I'm always, Front, full frontal. I just meet them for where they are at. I don't have, I don't get intimidated really at all. Well, you've or worked starstruck. With... You've never been starstruck? Robert Redford. I was starstruck when I didn't get to meet Robert Redford because I was being <laughs> so cool that I was pretending I didn't see him when he walked by. And then he walked by and I was like, oh, that was my chance. <laughs> that that's really I don't get starstruck it's funny I don't I I just see people for who they are and I also don't prejudge if people think oh this person's going to be this way or terrible or whatever the rumors I hear I'm always like let me meet them let me work with them and then I can decide on my own I don't need to be told is there a misconception among lay people like myself that actors and actresses are always in competition as opposed to the generosity that exists between and among performers? I personally think you're only competing with yourself. I don't think you're competing with other people. And when friends of mine get jobs that I've auditioned for, I'm so happy because I think, wow, they'll be great in that part. Or, oh, they're so good. I'm so glad they hired someone really good. So I don't see it as competition. And also, this: the more you stay in this business, the more you realize why you're cast or not cast is often for reasons that you have no idea. It's not because you were necessarily the best audition. It There's so many factors that go into it. Your height, your look, your sound. You Once I remember, I almost had a job and I was like, what happened? I thought that job was mine. And they said, no, at the last minute, the main producer thought you looked too much like his ex-wife. <laughs> <laughs> So that kind of thing happens. And you, as you get older, you get more immune to it. The only thing you can really control as an actor is do the best audition, be prepared, 
don't blow it off, really go in prepared. And if they cast you, if they don't, it's not within your control. And it's for reasons that you may never understand. Just keep doing your work. It's like when you read a review and they don't like you in a play, you're not going to change your performance the next night just because one critic didn't like what you were doing. You just keep doing what you do. Is it fair to say that stage remains your first love? I think so. I love the families that you get to know in a play. You get a whole community of people that you rehearse with, you see every day, you all know each other. And so it's a very familial, friendly, fun atmosphere. Whereas movies are very, oh, but the cat just knocked something over. I don't know which ever made a big crash. That's all right. We'll, we'll um, edit it out. But a movie, in a movie, you'll have, you're in your trailer, then you go to the set then you go back to your trailer. It's a very isolated world. And and you don't meet everyone else in the movie if you're not in a scene with them. Every now and then they'll do a reading of a movie where the whole cast comes in, but rarely because you have to fly everyone in from all over the place to come and do a read, a table read. And then maybe you don't work for the next two or three weeks. So they're going to fly you back home. And it's very complicated to get a movie set, a movie cast together. So it can be very lonely. Like you'll be in a movie with someone and they'll go, oh, did you work with, you know, Brad Pitt? And I'm like, no, because <laughs> I didn't have any scenes with him. He just happened to be in that movie. Or I think that's that's what I love about the theater. And I love the warm exchange. You can feel the audience listening, following you, staying involved. Whereas in a film, it's very cold and you think, oh, I think that went well. I'm not really sure. And it's mm. out of sequence. So it's a very different Phenomena. I think it's a an, an amazing skill that people have. The really good, the people that the big movie stars, because you know you, it's tremendous skill to do scenes out of sequence and to never revisit them. Because when you do a play, you go home at night and you'll think, oh, I'm going to think, I'm going to maybe go a little slower on that one speech. I don't think the audience is following me, or oh, I'm going to pick up the pace here, or oh, I'm not landing that laugh because I'm turning out too soon. Or you can really adjust it and every mm. night improve it a little bit and work on it. In a film, you have to get used to the fact that once it's shot and in the can, that little scene is gone. There's no fixing it unless every now and then they reshoot a scene or so, but rare. So you have to live with, okay, that's done. Move on, move on. Well, and that can be a hard adjustment. We're going to obviously talk about Law & Order in a little while. But you were on an episode with two absolutely phenomenal stage actors. It was Jerry Orbach's, Orbach's first Law & Order. And Elaine Stritch was on the same episode. Orbach's a Tony winner, I know for sure. Elaine Stritch's career is terrific. What was it like to be on the set with them in a completely different setting? Jerry Orbach is one of the nicest human beings in the world. He was just great. Always so gracious, very funny, playful, just a really good guy. And Elaine Stritch is just what you think. She's just tough, and but she's also very funny. And take no prisoners kind of woman, just called it like she saw it. Very matter of fact, rough and tumble. I think she had a broken arm or something at the time. And she was fabulous. We didn't, I didn't talk to her a lot because it was just a courtroom scene that she had, I had together, but I saw Jerry over the years all the time. And he would come and see me when I was in plays and, 
he and I became buddies. He was a good guy. When we, I remember watching the show with my children and, and they, Lenny and Lanny Stieglitz, I think was her name on the show. And they're going at it. And I paused the program and I said, if you guys only knew what great friends they were in real life and how long they've known each other. And I'm sure them going at each other is a, was funny in the background because I'm sure she probably wanted to say, go to hell, Jerry, or something like that. Right. Is, did it ever occur to you or did ever think that one particular milieu of entertainment was just going to be your life? In other words, I really want to do films, and but I really want to do television. You mentioned stage. Is any one of the three, you mentioned stage being more fun, uh, any one of the three kind of pull you in a direction where you're like, I'm going to go do this for a while, and then we'll see what happens? The main thing that pulled me was having children. I really slowed down my career because I didn't want to job out my children. So I didn't take out of town jobs for probably a long 15, 16 years till they were pretty much ready already in high school or pretty much in college, to be honest. So I pretty much stayed home and did I would do a lot of audiobooks I did I do political voiceovers I did things that I could stay close to home and I didn't travel as much as I had before I had kids and that I didn't know would happen but once I had kids I was like oh I want to raise them <laughs> <laughs> and and I so yeah that that changed my path a lot so I didn't necessarily think oh I want to do this movie or I want to do this TV I pretty much said, I want to be home with my kids. We should mention that uh, Ms. McCormick's husband is Byron Jennings, who is an actor himself. How much did that uh, help in being able to understand each other? I remember seeing him in Lincoln where he plays, I believe he plays Montgomery Blair, who used to be, uh, was Lincoln's postmaster general. And Yeah, that's who he played. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, no, he understands. And it's nice to have someone in the same business. Also, we don't, compete with each other. We both were very clear about prioritizing our two boys who we raised. And we also have done a lot of plays together. I think we've done 17 plays together. So we get to work together a lot, which is great. And he and I were never crazy about becoming rich and famous as much as just respected and working as much as we possibly can. But we didn't hit, there wasn't a big allure of fame for either of us, which I think made us, kept us sane. <laughs> may, I, may I ask how you met? We met doing a play in San Francisco at ACT, a Shaw play called Arms in the Man back in 1983. Really? That long? It's long interesting. time. It's interesting because you, he was in three episodes of Law and Order. Yep. And I thought when I first read that, I thought, oh, what a sweet romance, but it's Way predates Law and Order. Oh, way predates. Yeah. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise and sponsored by Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today is actress Carolyn McCormick. You've seen her in movies, on the stage, on television, and she is the smartest person 
on the show Law and Order. How did you get that job? Um, I just auditioned for it like everybody else. Joe Stern, <laughs> who was the showrunner at the time, I didn't know him, but he became a dear friend of mine. I auditioned for Joe Stern and the casting director, and I don't know, they hired me. And it was going to be a p- potential recurring, which is something you hear a lot sure. when you audition for when you auditioning for TV, because it makes it more enticing. It's not just a guest star; it's a potential recurring. And it truly did turn into a recurring role, which was great. Gave me tremendous freedom. They also, I did other series at the time. They, they were very good to me in terms of letting me in and out of things. I worked in San Diego, and I worked in Williamstown and would drive back to do my episode and then drive back to do the play at night. And it was a crazy time for a while, but they were very accommodating and I was happy to have the job and still get to do plays. Was it, you mentioned a few minutes ago about some, something about you uh, determined you didn't get a role. What do you think it was about you that landed you this role? I have no idea. I should ask Joe Stern that question. <laughs> That's a really good question. I'm going to ask him next time I talk to him. I don't know. Maybe it's because I was tall. Maybe it's because I didn't look like anyone else on the show. You know, it, it, now they check. You have to check a lot of boxes so you don't have everybody looking like they came from the same factory, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I know they needed a woman. Right. Because it was all guys. So that I remember they needed to have. When I first did it, it was, I think, Richard Brooks, Michael Moriarty, Chris Noth, Paul Servino, Dan Florick. Right. So there were no women. Apatha wasn't on it yet. They hadn't gotten all the different ADAs that they ended up, Jill Hennessy and Carrie Lowell and all those different people. I was the first woman. And that I do know I had going in my favor because I was a woman. So I don't know if I got cast because I was a woman, because I think they probably saw other women, but that definitely played a part in it. <laughs> Did you know you were in an episode of LA Law, as I recall? Mm-hmm. I think I was in the army, maybe when I was in the army from 87 to 90. So I think maybe that was, but Dan Florick was on LA Law. Did you know him? Did you know any of the five principal? Or I guess I should say, of course, wonderful district attorney. I didn't know any of them because I just knew the people. I knew the guest star in that was Cotter Smith. He and I had done a pilot together years before. Mm-hmm. And he was the guy, I think I was his lawyer. He was being accused of something. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. But I knew Cotter, but that had nothing to do with it. That was just a coincidence when we both showed up. But when you go on to the first day of Law and Order shooting, Stephen Hill and everybody, did you know anyone on the cast? Had worked with them before at all? Nope. Nope. Is it you don't fun? know that's what's so interesting because you end up getting to know everyone on a TV show better than a movie because you do ultimately work with everybody in terms of the regulars. Whereas in a film, you really just see the people you have scenes with. Unless they're working that day and they're in the makeup trailer at the same time as you, and then you can kind of chat. The reoccurring character of Elizabeth Olivet brought, I thought, and maybe this was incidental, or perhaps it was purposeful an intellectual quality to the show. Am I off base? Not that the other people were dumb, but your diagnosis and your lines and stuff seemed like that your explanations of characters in situations was deeper than a lot of the other characters, which is not an insult. 
she certainly used a lot of polysyllabics. If, how many times did they terms. say? <laughs> how many times did they say English, Liz? <laughs> I know so many. Oh, and I have a friend who's a who is an actual psychiatrist, psychologist, and I had to call her all the time and say, "What is this? What does this mean? And what? How do you get this? And how does this cause?" La, 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 la. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. Did the change after season three when uh, Paul Robinette leaves and Captain Cragen leaves? So now you have Lieutenant Anita Van Buren and you have Claire Kincaid. How did that change the show or change the set? I was happy to have some women around. It was nice. (laughs) But I was also sad to see Richard leave and I was sad to see Dan leave because you become friends with them. But it doesn't it's still business. Everyone just comes in, they do their lines. Everyone wants to get out, get home. Mm -hmm. Long days when you're shooting a TV show. So the set energy didn't change really at all because everyone's just trying to do their best work possible. You miss the people that you were accustomed to, but then you make new friends. Is there an episode or two that stand out for you? I know there's obviously the one where you're raped by the gynecologist. Yeah, I remember liking one that was about nurture versus nature with a boy, young, cute, young guy. I thought that was a really interesting episode. I just love how it brings up subjects without resolving and answering them in tying it up in a neat little bow, Mm. especially the early law and orders. It left questions open. So at the end of the episode, you could really have a discussion about, is it good that he got off or is it bad that he got off or did he do it or did he not do it? Or which are real situations that happen all the time in courtrooms that it isn't all, that it isn't all easily tied up that the law sums it up and says, this is how it's going to be. And this is the law. This is what will, that it's a much more complicated situa- situation there. I watched a documentary. It was on one of the DVDs. And one of the actors made the point that the, the cops don't get closure. Only yeah. the lawyers get closure. I thought I'd never thought of that before. No, the cops have to pass it on and they have to pass it on following so many rules. So it's not screwed up for the lawyers in terms of not touching things or how they get evidence or confessions or all of those things. So it's a very delicate procedure, getting someone to trial and getting someone actually found guilty. It's not easy to do. Was it ever considered for you to have a relationship with any of the male characters? No, Dick Wolf was very clear when he started this series to stay business and not get into personal backstories. So you never see these people going home or at their house or with their kids or husbands or partners or anything. And that was a choice. That wasn't a a coincidence. Dick did not want people to get involved in their personal side of it. He wanted to keep it business and keep it law and order. And how do we deal with a crime and how does the law match that crime or solve that crime or define, is it a crime? So he stuck with that because once you start having Olivet is hanging out with Briscoe or doing something, (laughs) then, Oh, when they break up, then you, then it becomes, goes down the path of a soap opera and who's sleeping with who. And he really didn't want to go down that path ever. Keep it very professional. That's great, I think, because once you open that can of worms, it's very hard to put it back in the bag, so to speak. So when it was revealed that Jack McCoy and Claire Kincaid were sleeping together as part of the ensemble, what did you think? 
I don't even remember that reveal. Was that revealed? I remember she dies in the car crash and she and Oh, oh, I totally forgot that. That also that one episode, I think when Jill got killed in the car accident mm-hmm. was a very divergent. It was a very different thing. It was like, let's experiment with going down this other path. But they never did another episode like that. One of the things we talked about before we started actually recording was I'd read an article years ago. It was actually an interview with Eddie Van Halen, and he was talking about when he met his heroes, guitarist for the British bands and other bands, you know, when he was growing up, he would just start throwing out songs and concerts and licks and go, tell me about this. Tell me about this. And the person to whom he was speaking would say, I have no idea what you're talking about. What? I don't remember that. You are one of the most beloved cast members of the longest running TV show ever. I guess if you don't count Meet the Press or 60 Minutes. So when people do what I've done a few times, hey, what about that one time? Or do you really wish she had been guilty instead of not guilty? Does it take you? Do you respect it as someone who enjoys her fans? Or do you just go, hold on, let me think a little bit and see if I remember. I'm usually embarrassed that I can't remember. I'm like, oh, dear, I should know that. I don't remember. And it's not because I don't have respect for the show. I have tremendous respect for the show, especially the early ones were so beautifully written and so complicated and fascinating subjects were brought up and good discussions to be had that people could talk about both sides of the issue, which I think is so important, sort of the bipartisan aspect of it. It's great. And I I love that part of it, but I don't remember them all because I'm like, oh, I also played Minuet on Star Trek. I was just going to ask you about that. people from that show. They know those shows backwards and forwards. And I've gone to conventions and people come up and they remember the lines. And I'm always so embarrassed that I don't remember as well as they do. Do you think people are disappointed that you don't like have the same William Shatner did the famous Saturday Night Live sketch where he was oh he went, yeah he, he went to the Star Trek convention and said have any of you actually ever kissed a girl <laughs> anyway. yeah no I don't think that because that falls into judgment too and I tend to be I tend to not really go into the judgment area of anyone's choices that they make that how they're going to live their life it's up to them but I am embarrassed that I can't remember like a great line if they want me to say something from that I'm like oh what did I say I don't remember what I said so. Is it a compliment that they, I hate to tell you how many Seinfeld lines or lines from Caddyshack or Law and Order, Animal House, all of us who are fans, we watch those movies or TV shows so many times and we have them memorized. Is it a compliment that someone has invested that many hours of their life? No, I love that someone thinks it's, that's great. I feel that way about Mrs. Doubtfire. I can almost recite (laughs) the entire film of Mrs. Doubtfire because we watched it with our boys growing up so much or Tootsie. Those two movies. Tootsie so I totally get terrific. it. If, if you love a movie or you love a TV show, I say go for it. I feel that way about The Office, the TV show, The Office. <laughs> hysterical. <laughs> so, no, I don't think of it as a, I, I think it's great. And go for it. If that anything that br- brings you peace of mind or enjoyment, I say yes, because there's so many things that aren't peaceful and aren't enjoyable. So if you can find a place that's your happy spot, I say yes. Did you mentioned not being on social media earlier? I don't think I checked your Twitter before we started the podcast and you haven't posted in a few years. Is there something about social media that 
does. I don't even know why I have a Twitter account. Someone set that up for me and I don't know how to use it. I don't really (laughs) want to use it. So I need, can you teach me how to get rid of it? Yes, ma'am. I can. (laughs) I need to know how to get rid of it because I just don't, I love to send pictures to friends and stuff. So if I take a picture that I think, oh, so-and-so will love this picture of my tree or my house or my son or whatever, I send it to the specific person that I think will enjoy it. I don't post for the masses because I don't know. It feels like showing off or something to me. I tried Facebook and I was like, oh, I don't want to send pictures of me on vacation. And it might make people feel badly that they're not on vacation. Or I don't want to send pictures of me with a famous friend or because then it feels show it feels flaunting. So it just, it doesn't make me feel good. So I don't do it. What would Elizabeth Olivet say about that? She'd say, if it doesn't make you feel good, don't do it. (laughs) You mentioned Tootsie and it reminded me of a question I wanted to make sure that I asked. Uh, Is it fun, not just law and order, but for you, but the kids and I, my children and I get a kick out of the the actors and actresses who were on Seinfeld, who are also in law and order and who were in law and order. And now they're on these other shows and doing these other things. Better call Saul was a guy from Seinfeld. Obviously the list goes on and on. And Jerry Stiller was on uh, law and order. Anyway, do you get a kick out of watching television or movies and Hey, I was on Spencer for hire with her or something like any, anything, any connection like that? Oh, when I'm, if I'm home alone, sitting watching TV or with my husband and a friend of mine comes up on a show I immediately text them. Oh my God, I just saw you. La, la, la. You were so great. Blah, blah, blah. I do it immediately because I think it's so fun. I'm like, oh, I just saw you. Or I'll see a friend of mine. And I'm like, you got my part. I auditioned for that part. And you were so good in it. I just, I'm like, share the wealth and enjoy it. You mentioned the, I think it was Ricky Gervais. He did the office in Britain. Yes. And then he hosted, I think, was it the Golden Globes? Yes. And he had a riff where he, picked out everyone in the audience who had been on law and order. Oh, <laughs> and there must've been 15 people. people. What is it like to have your husband was on three times, played three completely different roles. What is it like to have these recurring actors who come in? Last time I was a rapist. Now I'm a lawyer before I was a scientist. Now I'm a judge. Is that fun at all to have all these folks come back? Oh, it's great fun. It's it's a cross pollination to see everybody, and it's so fun to just I get with the get the call call sheet and immediately look and see who's on it and who do I know, so that I could go and say, hey, hi, I'm so glad you're doing the show. And it's just again enjoying. You're getting to work. You're getting any people, and it gets the world gets smaller and smaller the more the people that are still doing it at my mm-hmm. age and stuff. So it's just great to see your friends. I love it. Jerry Orbach said on an interview one time that the star of Law and Order really is New York City. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Oh, totally. And going to different places where you're shooting was so much fun to discover gorgeous office buildings or beautiful churches or some great apartment complex or some park I never even knew about or... (laughs) Oh, it's so much fun to be, to have the privilege of going around and seeing all these parts of New York that you would never go to because 
you wouldn't think of it. You go to the same places when you live in the city. I've lived there for, you always have your little pig path where you follow the same trails, same stores, the same restaurants, the same sort of location. I'm very Broadway centric because we work in Broadway and those restaurants and then there's stores that you know and stuff. So when I go to a new location, again, with Maplethorpe, we went to a lot of different locations and I loved it. Did it change? Because you see a part of New York that you wouldn't necessarily see. And New York is just this ever unfolding wonder of places. I've been there twice and you'd spend most of your time walking around with your neck craned one way or the other. I can't believe there aren't more people killed by cars just because they're looking around. Oh, yeah. And there's so many gorgeous pieces of architecture and little surprises all over the place. I, I, I just love it. There was a, a scene in one of the law and orders, I think it was in the third year, uh, where the, the mom and the son kill the Chinese kid who's competing with the other son for a scholarship or whatever. And one of the scenes was in France's Tavern, which is where George Washington said goodbye to his uh, officers. Oh. And, and I, well, last time I was in New York City, I went there just to see it, just to see it. And I was like, wow, I've just killed two birds with one stone. Yeah. And that's at the very end of the island, right? Correct. Down near yeah. Wall Street. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very cool historic part of New York. And the streets are still cobblestoned and beautiful. How much did it change uh, because of 9-11? I know the show changed a little bit, especially that first year afterward, but you've lived there, you worked there. What was it like for you? What I noticed the most after 9-11 is how nice New Yorkers can be, how considerate they were of everyone and everything. And it's so often New Yorkers get a bad name for being pushy and mean. And I was struck by how considerate everybody was to help helping out their neighbors, literally, and helping people deal with their fear and their anxiety. And it was good. I think I lived, I'm in Midtown, but lower Manhattan obviously suffered more because people had to vacate that area for so long. And then it was hit by Sandy. They And lower Manhattan got really damaged during that with all the water as well. Lower Manhattan has definitely gone through some major changes. And then COVID, a lot of those places never came back after COVID yeah. because people are working more from home and stuff. I think if you lived or worked in lower Manhattan, you would have, you feel it much more than people who live in other parts of the city. We have a few more minutes with Carolyn McCormick, stage actress, TV actress, film star. Uh, you have been in movies or shows or worked with some of the biggest leading men. If that's the way to say it. Leading actors. Uh, are there a few that stand out just for their kindness? I remember watching Sam Watterson talk about Stephen Hill, just how unbelievably generous and brilliant he was as an actor. But you've worked with so many men, so many actors and actresses, quite frankly, who have high reputations. Are there some that stand out maybe because you looked at it and went, wow, what a terrific performance? Or they were just particularly generous in how they gave their lines or scenes, that sort of thing? Yeah, I, no one jumps out off the top. My favorite person to work with is probably my husband because he and I have such a good time working together. But in terms of the famous people I've worked with, 
everyone has a different, there's something like Dennis Quaid. I love working with, he was so much fun and he's so playful. Sam Waterston, I love working with because he's so smart and he's always reading some incredible book and his children were really fun to talk about because they also are super smart and doing very well. Jerry, I loved hanging out with. Chris Noth is a very dear friend of mine. I think he's a wonderful man. And so, yeah, I don't know. There's none that I would say, oh my God, that was not off the top of my head. I can't think of anyone. Did Law & Order in some ways become a destination show for actors and actresses? They've had three or four, maybe four or five Oscar winners on the show. What was it like for you when, and I forget his name, please forgive me, uh, the actor who played Emil Skoda ends up winning the Oscar. Oh, that was great. I bet all of you were just cheering. Yeah, that's right. J.K. Simmons, forgive me. Oh, yeah. And he's a wonderful actor. And he also is an extremely gracious man. No, that was great. That's just fun. It's just fun to celebrate anyone's success, I think, because it's a hard it's it's a hard profession. And it's very taxing on one emotionally at times because of the the enormity of rejection you get. So I think it's so good to celebrate when you're when things are going well. Do you ever appreciate it? Purposely steal a scene from your husband and give him a little wink. No, but when we were doing Hedda Gobbler, I was pregnant with my second son. And when there was a scene on stage where he had to come up and talk to my character and our backs to the audience. And every night I would make a list of potential names and he would come up and scratch them <laughs> off. And then we'd continue to play the scene. And it, look, we were supposed to be writing a book. Anyway, <laughs> we do things like that. But yeah, we were trying to come up with a name. What can I say? And what'd you decide on? Skylar. S-K-Y-L-A-R. We I don't know reached- if we decided during the show, though. I think we had a lot of other names. But I still have a little list in his scrapbook of all the names he could have been. We have reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast on the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Carolyn McCormick, are you ready? Yes, I feel like this is the Colbert questionnaire. Uh, non-graded. It's, this is nice, even though a okay. couple, of them are, couple of them are pretty tough. Uh, number one, what was your first job? I was a newscaster in Houston, Texas on Channel 39 News in the afternoon before Gilligan's Island. I did a little five-minute spot. That's true. I I was in high school. I won't ask you, Marianne or Ginger. I won't. Number two, what was your I was torn between the two. I wanted to be both of them. I wanted Ginger's outfits and Marianne's humor. That's that's a perfect way to sum it up. Uh, What was your first concert? I think it was Tina Turner in Germany. With Ike or? On her own. On her own. What were you doing? What was going on in Germany? I was shooting a movie called Enemy Mine. Oh, and that was a big break for you, which I should have asked about earlier before. So uh, let's move on since I didn't ask you that. I'm sorry. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Overstory. Bye. Richard Powers. How could I forget that? Why do you like Richard it so much? Richard Powers wrote Overstory. Why do you like it so much? It basically deals with trees and communication and people and something I feel so 
so essential about learning how to take care of each other and to take care of the earth. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? That's a good one. It's funny. You think of only bad events in history. Let me ask you a quick intermission question. You're too young to remember the Kennedy assassination, I'm guessing. No, I remember it, but I was young. Yeah, happened in Dallas, obviously. But we're doing this podcast interview on July 20th. Do you remember where you were for the moon landing? For the moon landing? Which is July 20th, 1969. Oh, yeah. I was at home in my little house in Houston, Texas, with my family, watching it on TV in black and white. But event in history, I would like to have seen any day in which a war ends in any city, that joy like that you think of when you see those famous pictures of when World War II ended or to just be in a crowd with that much celebration and relief and pure happiness of boys coming home to their moms and wives and the famous picture, I believe, is it in Times Square? Yeah, Times Square, the sailor kissing the girl, mm-hmm. the nurse or whatever. But yeah, something where you, it's the end of something horrible and the beginning of something good. A very unique answer. <laughs> and I've done 230 of these podcast interviews, and so that's a unique answer. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, just to chat, Whom would you choose? I would want to go see Robert Redford and get over my (laughs) starstruck. (laughs) You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Our guest today has been Carolyn McCormick. She's been incredibly generous with her time, with her personality, her sense of humor, her thoughts, Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's truly an honor. I'm very grateful. Oh, thank you. It was very fun. Good questions. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.